I would massively appreciate if you enjoy this podcast that you would leave a review or just hit five stars, ideally, or one star, if that's how you feel about it. I do appreciate honest feedback. Thank you so much. I thought, yeah. Morning, Graham. Or good afternoon, evening for you, probably. How are we doing? Yeah, it's uh, 7 p.m. <laughs> well, I appreciate you being on a call at this time of day. That's uh, above and beyond, sir. Oh, that's okay. No worries. So you're obviously Scottish, so where, where are you based? Well, I'm tempted to go into a philosophical discussion on what makes someone Scottish, because my mother <laughs> is half Polish and my father is English. And although I was born and brought up in Scotland, I think a lot of Scots would disagree with you. But yeah, I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> so base-wise, I'm based between a little island called Papastur in Shetland, where we have a family croft. Have you heard of do you know what a croft is? Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah. So, yeah, we've got yeah. a family croft on a wee island there, a couple of hundred acres. And so I'm between there and um, close to Edinburgh and or close to Aberdeen. So I've got three different bases. What about you? Where are, where are you geographically? I'm uh, in Sydney, but uh, originally from country New South Wales. Um, but funnily enough, um, we, my wife and I had a holiday to uh, Scotland and Shetland last year. Um, was it last October? Yeah. Last September? Yeah. Sorry, last August. Last August. And had a fabulous, fabulous time there. We did a, um, a beautiful walk north of Edinburgh called the Five Coastal Walk. And, um, yeah. and then uh, set off from Aberdeen on the ferry and had, uh, you know, a week in Shetland, which is pretty amazing. <laughs> pretty amazing. Superb. Where did you go in Shetland? I guess, uh, you know, there's the, the, the police show and, and, um, you know, seeing that series, seeing the um, the environment, the scenery, it was just so different to anything you'd see in Australia. You know, the colours were so much more muted and uh, a lot more wind. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, but just just loved it. We had a great time. So you got a lot of wind and it was August. You were um, you're experiencing the real Shetland. That's good. I mean, Shetland is the... What do they say? Like the Saudi Arabia of renewable energy, because the wind—it's yeah. always yeah. pretty much always on the go, even in the summer. I mean, you get the rare still day, but it is rare. And uh, yeah, it was remarkable, you know, just um, catching the the ferry from Aberdeen and just seeing all the, you know, the the wind farms everywhere in the ocean, on the mountains, all over the place. So uh, I can see why it is the. Um, you know, the Middle East of, of renewable energy. It was amazing. Yeah. I kind of was thinking about our conversation and about the little bit I know about you. And I, the thing that just I kept coming back to, I mean, it's a difficult thing to talk about, but it's a real thing for a lot of people. And I, I have people contact me about this. And so I'm really interested in your perspective, Graham. When someone is in a dark place um and they contemplate the 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 ending of it all themselves mm. is that 
So you talk about, I, I love what you say about care and maybe that'll, that'll come up about caring, but is, is it like a, in some ways, a, a caring act for the people around them that they feel that they are in inverted commas a burden to? Is it a courageous act that they're contemplating or is, as society would have had it, certainly, is it a, a cowardly thing? Yeah, well, I've uh, felt suicidal. I've um, attempted to take my own life. And when when um, I did that, I think that I genuinely thought that um, my loved ones would be better off without me because I'd been in a severe depression for five years. I, I was thought I would never recover. It wasn't within the remote possibility. And so that's the thinking you have. And it is insane. It isn't, you know, when you reach that point where you think that people would rather you weren't here than than being here, that is just so wrong because, uh, you know, tragically I've spoken to many families that have lost someone to um, to suicide and, uh, you know, it's, it, it's not that way. They want, they want you around and they play a very, very important role. And one of the things that I was involved in helping to start in Australia is a movement called Are You OK? And it started because um, the founder, Gavin Larkin, lost his father to suicide about 20 years ago. And he was finding it hard to really explain to his son, who never met the grandfather, you know, why he'd taken his own life. And so the whole idea of of are you okay was, you know, to be able to identify someone who's struggling, to be able to have the are you a conversation with empathy and really listen with true empathy, but then encourage them to take action, to take one small step, you know, be it to see their GP or call a helpline or call their psychologist or a psychiatrist. Um, you know, we are, and particularly with young people following the pandemic, they've had a, just a brutal time. And, you know, the, it's it's shown that there's a 20% greater incidence of depression, anxiety, substance abuse for young people following the, the, um, the pandemic. Because when you think about when you were their age, you know, like 18 to 25, your friends were everything, you know, they were more important than your family. And yet very, very often with the pandemic, you weren't able to see them physically. And um, that, you know, really paid a toll. And and I think other things, you know, tap into that, like um, social media and comparison with each other. But, um, you know, if there's one message I always like to convey, no matter how bad it seems, that that... You know, if you do the right things, take the right action, you will improve and, and very likely you go on to have a better life. And, and I truly believe that I'm very fortunate to have a very meaningful life now. But if I hadn't had that experience, it, it wouldn't be this way. I was think, forced to think deeply about my own priorities and values. Um, you know, I decided to write a series of books and so and actually surveyed over 4,000 people to find out what worked best in their recovery. And, you know, I make my living now helping in the workplace, helping, helping leaders and teams to be more caring and resilient and enjoy growing together. And I really believe that, that those teams, 
or what I call often crew, is critical to help us cope with the ups and downs in life. And we can have a work crew and a home crew. Sometimes they're combined. But having supportive people around you is really the most important priority that we can have. So I, I love your answer. However, I can't let you go yet because we I don't think we've bottomed this out, Greg, because what I felt at the beginning there was that you, from your own experience, and don't let me put words in your mouth, but it felt like you were saying that you did think it was a caring, it was going to be a caring act that you were going to be taking. And I totally hear you saying, actually, in truth, the people around you don't want you to go. So please don't do that. Mm. I hear that. And I love the idea of the crew, and I'm sure we'll come back to it. But can can you, I don't know how much you're able to share, but I know you've publicly shared that note, your kind of last note, a suicide note, I guess we would call it. And I've read that, and that looked like it came from a place of caring about those people. So can you take me back there in terms of how did you come to this concept of crew? Because that just feels like something much later. Or did a crew show up for you? Like what what stopped that note? coming to fruition because you felt you were in a caring place of looking after those people around you who would have had enough of you after five years of depression. Yeah. And, you know, in, in that period, you know, I lost my job, my marriage broke down and I had to go and live with my parents and I wouldn't have survived without their undividing care and love. And mm. so it, it was somewhat of a caring th- thinking that, you know, I was a hassle to them. I was a hassle to people around them. I was a burden. But there was also another factor that I was really hopeless as well. You know, I just didn't think it was at all possible to come back from where I from where I was. And um, and and the crew and you know that whole we care mindset did evolve much later. Um, and it was a path. You know, first of all, I wrote books called Back from the Brink, um, about how to overcome depression. And, you know, I interviewed a couple of people from the UK, Alistair Campbell and also um, Trisha Goddard, uh, you know, had a TV show in the, in the UK. And I interviewed, you know, some well-known people in the, uh, the US as well, Patrick Kennedy, who was the son of Ted Kennedy. And uh, another, it was a mix uh, of people that were well-known, but also every day people. And as I said, with that particular book, I surveyed um, 4,000-plus people to find out what worked best in their recovery. And that came to form a framework for me where in a CI care framework. And so I is how you identify someone who's struggling, and that's usually a change, a change in behaviour, a change in mood, change in circumstances. The C is for compassion putting yourself in their shoes and asking, are you okay? But really listening with empathy. And this is something that men are often really poor at. They want to go straight into problem solving. But really the, the idea in this is that the person feels understood because the more they feel understood, the greater our capacity to influence them. And so the A then is for access experts. That's helping you to find what we call in Australia a GP, some some people call it a primary physician. But, you know, finding a mental health savvy GP is really important because they're, they're your gateway between better care, you know, be that from a psychologist, a psychiatrist, or even, you know, 
social therapy, you know, getting out of your own company and, and mixing and working with people. So that's, you know, the access experts. The R is for revitalizing work. And work is really, meaningful work is really, really important um, to having a good life. And it's also very important to recovery. In the work situation, people often feel that, you know, we should send them home and, you know, they'll have time on their hands to sort things out. And quite often that can be the worst thing you do. You know, if they're a lonely person, they're living alone, sitting at home by themselves looking at the wall is not a good, uh, is not a good recommendation. And being connected with their teammates or their colleagues is really good for that, um, getting back on the right path. And, uh, it's, it's something that, you know, just sort of grew, um, about and, and and the recovery research tells you this as well. The people that actually insult and coach people back to work from a psychological injury, they'll tell you that it's much much better for that person to be connected in some way with their with their teammates. Because um, I was out of work for five years and it felt like Mount Everest, you know, trying to come back and work again. In fact, I had to start working in a voluntary capacity build up confidence, and uh, and then go back to the paid work. And then the E is for exercise. And, um, you know, I became a real passionate advocate for exercise as a way to improve our mental health. So, yeah, that's, that's, so that's the eye care framework. Identify, compassion, access experts, revitalizing work and exercise. So I, I, I love it, and I love that it has a nice acronym I would I would be getting the person to exercise first though, but that could be my background because I used to be a personal trainer. You know what it's like though if you move, like you change your physical geography, you change your mental geography to some some degree. But I love I loved I was listening to you on another podcast yesterday when I was driving. You had this concept that just hit me. I loved it. It was like, who would you call at two in the morning if you're desperate and you need ten grand? You know, you need ten thousand mm. bucks. I was like, yeah. And I started listening and I thought, I'm so mm. fortunate. I've got guys I could call, mm-hmm. brothers, friends. And I'm like, yeah, I just feel so fortunate. But to it, uh, it, it well, could you speak to that first? Because that, that was a, quite a specific thing you said. So I'll just shut up and let you talk about that because I love that. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, in Australia, people are mates. G'day, mate. How you going? Everyone yeah. says, yeah, I'm fine. You know, that's just the way things are. But when I came back from, you know, very, very dark places, I really made a deliberate effort to have much closer relationships with my male friends. You know, mm-hmm. I'm lucky to have a very supporting and caring and loving wife, but I think it's really important for men to have relationships outside the marriage. And I think there's three elements to it. And the first thing is that it's got to be a positive experience with that person, and that's got to be a, a duh. The second thing is that it's got to be consistent. You know, you've got to – you can't see someone once a year. You have to catch up with people. And I've made it – in fact, tomorrow morning, it's 7 p.m. here now in Sydney, but 6.30 tomorrow, I'm meeting a really good mate, Ted, and we're catching up for a walk and breakfast. And uh, and so I catch up with him once a month. I've got um, on Sunday I meet three other guys and we go for a walk at the beach and come back and have breakfast. 
And over that period of time, the consistency, things happen. And you talk about, um, you know, relationships, you talk about financial challenges, you talk about um, illness, you talk about, um, you know, all sorts of things. And when you're, when you can be vulnerable with people, it gives people permission and particularly men to be vulnerable with you as well. And that they're the sort of relationships that do allow you to call someone at 2 a.m. and say, you got, you got to transfer 10 grand into my bank account. I just need it urgently. No questions. Bang. It's, it happens. <laughs> Maybe I need a couple more sentences than that, but, um, you know, you're not starting from a, you're not from a starting a stop, you know, you really got an existing relationship in place that is the foundation for it. Yeah, no, I love that. I, I was tempted to interrupt you when you first started talking because you said every man needs a relationship outside his marriage. I was like, well, we'll just flip that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, that I could be a bit that. controversial. <laughs> it need be just a little bit controversial. <laughs> yeah. So this idea of crew is cool. And what it sounds like from the story you've told so far is that you're your parents were your first caring crew during that time of hopelessness, your your words, hopelessness. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, most of my friends sort of fell away. And, you know, I blame myself just as much for that because I really isolated myself. I didn't want to catch up. And, uh, you know, funny enough, this, this guy I'm catching up with tomorrow, Ted, he was someone that just kept on reaching out, kept on reaching out. And, um, you know, you, you form a very special bond with someone like that. Yeah. But uh, I, I think um, I now talk about a we care mindset, and this applies whether it's in our work or home. And there's three components to that. There's self-care, you know, building our, our personal self-care and resilience. There's the crew care, which is building more psychologically safe and resilient teams you know they're probably more work terms than than home terms but it just means that you know you can be honest and authentic with that group of people and the third element is the red zone care and that's when you're able to identify someone who's struggling to have the are you okay conversation and uh, encourage uh, help seeking and so i really believe that to have a sustained positive mood we need to champion all those three things to um and if you do that you know we build personal growth we build personal resilience and we reduce risk of um you know burning out or uh you know dropping out <laughs> um so we can edit this bit out of the podcast if it's too close and too personal but each time i ask you about your own story you tell me a little bit and then you give me a structure or a framework and that's cool because the framework might not be <laughs> But there's an element where we both know the, the power of a personal story to engage someone can be the thing that makes a difference, whether they use the framework or not. So are you able to speak more about like your actual situation where you were back home with your mom and dad? Or if you're not comfortable to talk about that, like I say, we don't have to go there. But it just, I mean, that's the bit I know people will be fascinated with. It. I'm fascinated with it. So I don't really mm -hmm. mind what other people are fascinated with. I know when I'm in a conversation, I know what I would love to hear. So, yeah, what's your thoughts on that, Graham? Is it too personal? Yeah, it is. Don't worry about it. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it, it is very, very important. And but it, but it also flashes back to a different time and a different me. And, uh, you know, I think that's probably something that does make, make, make me fast track a bit. But, you know, I was with my parents for 
two and a half years. And I was literally suicidal every day for two years. Wow. Um, every day, you know, I, I would think about how I might do it. And I, and I, and I guess, you know, you talk about courage whether you do it or don't do it. And there's a, there's a lot in the human psyche that wants to survive. You know, we've been, you know, brought up like that. But when it is hopeless for a long period of time, you do give up, um, you do give up hope. And it was no miraculous recovery. That's, that's the nature of mental illness. But, you know, if I, if I think about the order of things happened that made a real difference, the first thing was beginning to walk and walk really regularly. Hmm. And that started off for 15 minutes and then built up to 45 minutes an hour. I then um, began to reach out to friends and family that I'd isolated myself from. And I didn't, I didn't look forward to that, um, you know, because I, I was still embarrassed about speaking about it, but I would go ahead and organize to have a coffee or a, or a beer. Um, but afterwards, I always felt better. <laughs> yeah. So I may not have looked forward to it because I was embarrassed that I was going to position myself as, as uh, you know, someone weak who wasn't coping. But overwhelmingly, you know, I got support and encouragement from those people. And, and so, you know, started this sort of slowly up and down, but in the right sort of direction. And then the third element was um, embracing meditation. And I had tried to meditate when I was depressed and I, and I couldn't do it. Um, but because I'd improved my mood somewhat through the exercise and the family and friends, I found that I was able to do it for a short period of time, 10 minutes. And that became my one thing. That became the foundation that I have to today. That's still my number one priority every day to do at least 15 minutes of meditation. And that then led to, you know, I guess a higher and higher mood. I talk about a moodometer, you know, green zone, Amazon, red zone. And then the next thing was deciding to write my book, uh, my first book, Back from the Brink. And that was a real game changer because I really made a conscious decision that I wanted to use my experience to help other people. Um, and I must say, <laughs> that wasn't my insight. I remember standing in, in um, my parents' kitchen in Foster, beautiful uh, beachside town about uh, three hours north of Sydney, and it was a beautiful sparkling day outside, had lovely views over the beach. And I was just saying, why me? Why me? I was just feeling so sorry for myself. Yeah. And my mother, she just sort of um, hit me with this uh, mother's stare and said, <laughs> and said, I believe you know, she was only five foot two. But she said, I believe you used this experience to help other people. And um, I thought she was crazy because I couldn't ever imagine that happening. But it did sow a seed. And so when my um, mood had improved somewhat with the exercise, catching up with family and friends and meditation, I did decide to write my first book. And the thing that made that different was that 
It was about helping others. When you're oppressed, you're totally self-focused. And I think, um, you know, transitioning to, you know, how can I use this experience to help other people? Even when I didn't feel like it, I had a, a greater, I had a sense of purpose yeah. that I would do at least, you know, half an hour and then and then take a break. And uh, so, and then from that and the publication of the book, I ended up interviewing, you know, some well-known Australians, a couple of Olympic gold medalist swimmers and uh, Australia's best-known artist and best-known poet. Um, and that led to lots and lots of media when my book was launched. It was launched at the Black Dog Institute, which is a very famous uh, mood disorder um, unit in, in Sydney. And, uh, and that led to lots of interviews. And those interviews, um, you know, allowed me to share my story, but also, you know, share what I'd found really helpful. And what I found was that, you know, very often people would, you know, send me an email and say, look, you know, really love the message. And I really resonated with, you know, um, John or Sally or whatever. And it was someone that was like them. And, uh, you know, that's why, you know, the more we share our stories and more a wider range of people share the stories, the more it's going to help others. Okay. A couple of things really hit me there. Number one, uh, have you interviewed your mum? Because to me, your mum sounds like a total legend and there's a book in there. So if you haven't already done it, please interview your mum. I'm not even joking. Have you ever interviewed your mum? Yeah, I have. Um, there's a, there's a, um, a service online it was funded by Ted called StoryCorp. And, um, and I've, I interviewed both mum and dad and, uh, and, uh, you know, sadly, um, my mum passed away October 15 last year. So it was, um, yeah, it was really, of course, really devastating to lose her. Yeah. Um, but, you know, she said to me, you know, right at the end, uh, you know, I'm really proud of what you've done and who you have become. And I had the um, opportunity to say to her and to dad, that I wouldn't have made it without you. You know, I'm 100% sure of that. That's beautiful, man. That makes me emotional just thinking about that. It's a lovely thing. And, and what it actually, the other, the other point I want to make, um, yeah, I'm sorry for your loss for your mum. That's, that's a big, big deal. Thank you. Uh, yeah, the other point, though, was about... Um, when you were reaching out to your family and friends, I think it's important to highlight for anyone listening who's feeling desperate or hopeless. And often there'll be that sense of embarrassment that you mentioned. And I would just encourage anyone listening because what it sounds like to me, see, see what you think of this. I think that you, even though you felt embarrassed and hopeless in your hopelessness, you were actually giving a, it's a wee gift you're giving to those people because when you reach out, they get a little spark of purposefulness because they're like, oh, cool, I get to, have a chat with Graham and try and cheer him up a bit or or whatever. Like it's it's that human connection. It's that feeling of purpose though, where you know someone's going through a shit time. So you want to help them. Like anyone yeah. is a human being, it gives them a positive feeling to be able to try and help. Yeah, yeah. And I, I really encourage um your listeners in other part of parts of the world to check out the Are You Okay website. 
Mm. So it's the letters ruok.org.au. And what we've learned, and we're now probably about 13 years into RUOK, is that most people want to help. And yeah. we did research in year one, and we found out the main reasons people didn't ask for help is they didn't know how to start the conversation. And they were really concerned that someone might say, no, I'm not okay, and they don't know what to do. And so, you know, you don't have to know all the exam- all the um, answers at all. You have to listen and keep asking questions and really show that you care by that listening with empathy. But if someone then feels understood, you greatly increase your capacity to encourage help-seeking or encourage doing something about it. And you're right, absolutely, Thor, that it's it's so much better for the people that are well to reach out to someone who is struggling because it's much, much harder for the person who is struggling to say, let's catch up. Hmm. So don't hesitate to ask someone, look, and, and often a good way to do this is to make an observation about a change you've observed in them. Look, I notice, you know, you normally come to Friday night drinks. You haven't been doing that. Are you okay? Is everything okay? And then really listen. Um, if they say, you know, yeah, I'm fine. I said, well, you know, you, you don't seem fine. Um, are, th- are things all right? Are you, you know, have you spoken to anyone about this? And quite often, and this is the case for men in particular, they'll say, they'll, they'll be in denial. I'm fine, no worries. And so there's, there's a couple of things or three things that I recommend in that sort of situation. The first is that don't be afraid to revisit it. Don't be a, afraid to revisit that conversation a week or two weeks later if you're still seeing that person isn't right. We've got a wonderful um, video on the Are You Okay YouTube channel, and it's a true story between a boss and uh, his teammate in the rail industry. Rail industry, very blokey industry, 95% male. And um, it was between Tom and Justin. Justin was the person who had bipolar. But Tom just kept on coming back quietly. And Justin actually said that when he came back the sixth time, I knew I just couldn't fudge it anymore. I just couldn't yeah. do it anymore. So don't be afraid to revisit it. The second thing you can do is to, if they're not, if it's a work colleague and they're not willing to talk to you, is there someone else at work who has a closer, more trusting relationship with them? Have a chat with them. Ask them to sort of check it out, what's going on. And the third thing, which can be, again, really, really helpful, is to volunteer your own struggles, you know, to say, well, God, mate, the first year of the pandemic, being stuck at home and not being able to go out, I oh, I really felt anxious. I couldn't get out of a bed. So if you have got that real story, it has to be, has to be true. It has to be authentic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you do share that, it will massively increase the chance that that person will then open up again. So there are ways that, you know, the person asking can explore it much further. Nice one. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to say that we're going to wrap up now, if that's okay. Cause we've just, we had half an hour slated and I've got a hard stop coming up in a few minutes anyway. So thank you for your time and for being willing to share 
Um, yeah, and your mum sounds like a legend. I'm going to have to go try and find that. Maybe you can send me through. You send me the links, and I'll put a couple of links under in the show notes. But I'd, I'd definitely love to put that interview with your mum in the show notes and the Are You Okay website at, at minimum. So any final reflections from you would be welcome before we sign off, Graham. Yeah, well, um, I really encourage people to also check out wecare365.com.au. So on there is that I Care framework poster. And so people can download it from that website. And there's also a um, uh, a resource there, which is how to build a mentally healthy culture checklist in the workplace. And the Weekend 365 is about simple, scalable programs to help people prevent or catch early issues in the workplace. Superb. Thanks very much. No worries. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Cool. Maybe see you in Shetland again sometime soon, man. If you're coming to Shetland, let me know. We'll get you over to the I island. I certainly will. I sea certainly will. We've got some of the best yeah. sea caves in the world, so I'll take you through them in the speedboat. You'll love it. Oh, amazing. That sounds great. I'd love to do that. Good man. Bye now. All the best. I am starting to think of Thor as my secret weapon. He's helped me and coached me with running my business, but most recently he helped me fight through one of my biggest fears, public speaking. I was due to give a speech and told Thor about it, highlighting my phobia. Thor couldn't have been a better help. He turned my phobia into confidence and coached me through my speech over several sessions, managing to build on my confidence every time I spoke to him. The speech went amazingly. People laughed at my jokes. I wish they laughed at my jokes, Dan. <laughs> They they sometimes do. They asked loads of questions and I was even invited to speak at another event. Thank you, Thor. You are a superstar. If you want to read Dan's recommendation, head to LinkedIn. There's 83, I think now, recommendations on my LinkedIn profile. If we're not already connected, please do connect. And of course, if there's anything I can do for you and you want to have a, a quick chat, let me know. Send me a direct message. 